Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. No matter who we are or where we live, we all need to eat. And whether we eat plants or animals, or a mix of both, ultimately, the food we need comes from the soil. My guest today, Joe Handelsman, has noticed some shocking things about the soil we depend on for life, and she's here today to tell me all about it. Welcome to Future Imperfect. Hello, welcome to Future Imperfect. I have a fascinating topic for you, which would have fascinated people back in the Middle Ages and beyond, because it's about soil. And soil is one of those things that we sometimes take for granted, but we really shouldn't. So, Joe, would you be kind enough to introduce yourself and talk about the book which you've just released? Sure. I'm Joe Handelsman. I'm the director of the Wisconsin Institute for Discovery at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And I've been a soil scientist for many years, soil microbiologist, and decided it was time to write a book about the crisis that's facing us that is worsening every day, and that is the loss of our topsoil across the world. And the bad news is that in about a few decades, we'll be out of soil for farming and all the other purposes of soil. That's if we keep going the way we are. But the good news is that we can fix the problem. And we know exactly what to do. And we just have to have the will to do it. So can we back up a little bit and talk about what is the definition of soil for those that might not? I mean, yeah, we walk across it, we see it, but there's topsoil and then think there's subsoil. And this is the layer on the earth, which is really important. So could you sort of take us to that level first for those that might not be familiar with it? Sure. Soil is formed from a combination of the bedrock, which is the solid surface that's way under the surface that we actually see. And that rock gets weathered and changed by time and conditions and organisms. And ultimately, at the very top, forms topsoil, which is rich in decomposing and living organisms. There are billions of bacteria just in a teaspoon of soil. 
And that's just the bacteria. That doesn't even count the viruses and fungi and little nematodes and worms and every other organism. So the plants, animals, and microbes are what really give the topsoil its life and its texture and its nutrients for growing other plants, other organisms. And then underneath that, there's the subsoil, which is much more mineral-based, has much less organic matter or decomposing organisms. And that's mostly rock and you know, pulverized material. And then below that, if you go deep enough, you get to the bedrock. And so the topsoil is what we really depend on for the nutritious and, and fertile part of our land for growing things. And 95% of our food supply depends on that topsoil for production. And so it's often been called the skin of the earth. It's a very, very slim little layer across the surface of the earth, but it's absolutely vital to our survival and survival of all other organisms on earth. So how thick is that layer of topsoil? Because I'm aware that it varies hugely in quite local areas sometimes, but also there are very fertile areas that by accident perhaps become fertile, and but other areas with very thin topsoil. But what does it range between? I guess it ranges from zero. Yep, it definitely reaches zero. As we lose our topsoil, there's more and more of the earth that has no topsoil and the surface is actually subsoil, which is really lousy material for growing crops and trees in. It can go from in, in undisturbed environments where there is naturally occurring topsoil, it can go from you know a quarter of an inch or a couple of centimeters to many meters deep. And the soil in the Ukraine is some of the best soil that's ever been found on earth. And it's thought to have, for most of it, five feet of topsoil, which is way more than any soil I've ever seen and more than just about anything in the United States or most of Europe or any other continent. It's really kind of a unique soil. So if you could imagine a soil that is topsoil as deep as I am tall, it's kind of a remarkable image. And you said that that geopolitically has been uh, an issue for Ukraine, perhaps, and might still be one. Yeah, historians uh, like Tim Snyder, uh, who's a historian at Yale and wrote a wonderful book on this called Black Earth, argued that Mein Kampf and other writing from Hitler shows very clearly that he invaded Ukraine for the soil because he believed that the Germans needed more food than they could produce on their soil. And he was very shrewd and knew that probably the most fertile land in the area was Ukraine. And he was right because Ukraine is called the breadbasket of Europe. It's the source of a vast majority of grain and other crop products. So we don't know if the current invasion of Ukraine is based on soil, but there's a good chance that that's part of the motivation. Fascinating. There's something that we often in the modern world just don't think about mm -hmm. should be so vitally important to us. Mm -hmm. So what is the problem at the moment? What's happening to topsoil in much of the world in agriculture? Well, agriculture in the last couple of hundred years in particular has moved very heavily to being based on plowing. And plowing is very destructive to soil because it breaks up the structure of the soil it breaks the soil clods and clumps that we're probably all familiar with down to single particles, which move much more easily with wind or water. And if there's any slope on the land, then the water will wash a lot of that topsoil away if it's not held by organic matter that tends to stick it together. 
And so it's an endless cycle because the more you degrade the soil, the more vulnerable it is to erosion. And the more erosion, then the less healthy it is and the less organic matter there is to hold it in place. And so this sort of what we would think of as traditional plan with enormous tractors and those big spade-like sort of things that that dig surprisingly deep, I always thought. Mm -hmm. Seems unnecessarily deep because plant roots don't probably go that far down. But presumably what that's doing is, well, apart from the mechanical issue, it's also churning up the organisms that my guess is they live at different levels Mm -hmm. and suddenly they found themselves buried 18 inches deep Mm -hmm. and they can't survive there. So they die and the ones that live deep can't survive at the surface. So everything just gets killed. Is that more or less it? It's kind of a mixture of impacts. You know, when land is first broken, it's very hard to do that by hand or with a stick, which is what people used to use for digging areas for seeds. So the plow was an incredible invention in being able to break open furrows in which to plant in very dense land. And in fact, Thomas Jefferson invented a new version of the plow, the moldboard plow. And it's said that that's the plow that allowed the Midwest of the United States to be opened up in terms of agriculture. And that had some very positive and some very negative effects. The positive was that there was tremendous capacity for food production. And so European colonists settled throughout the Midwest because they could farm on the land. But that also led to the displacement and death of many, many Native Americans. It also led to the destruction of the Midwestern soils, which are the best, deepest, richest, most fertile soils on our continent. So the plow has kind of mixed value and impacts. Turning the soil over, which is what we sometimes call plowing, can be very beneficial because it can incorporate oxygen and provide more air for the soil organisms that live deep, which can be very beneficial. So it doesn't necessarily kill those organisms that are suddenly exposed on the surface. Sometimes they grow wildly as a result. So plowing is not intrinsically a bad thing initially. The problem is that farmers use it for so many different things. So in a typical field that is heavily plowed, A farmer will plow to open the furrows in the spring, so soften the soil and make it possible to plant. And then during the season, plowing can be used to turn over the plants that have grown between the furrows, between the crop. And that's a very effective means for weed control, particularly in farming where herbicides that kill the weeds are not permitted, like organic farming. So that's another time they plowed. And they may do that multiple times in some crops. And then at the end of the season, many farmers will plow as well. And so then at the end of the season in a temperate environment, like most of Europe and the U.S. and Canada, the soil is open and bare for many, many months. So if a harvest is, say, in October and then the farmer plows, there's this bare soil until the planting in the spring. And so there's many months where the soil has been freshly turned over, so its structure has been broken up, and so it's pulverized down to single particles, which makes it very vulnerable to movement. And then there's wind, because, of course, the seasons in between the plowing and ultimate planting will come with a lot of wind and a lot of water, and both of those will remove topsoil. So that's part of the problem, but we can prevent that with several techniques. First of all, we could plow less. That would be a good thing. 
And in the 1970s, some U.S. scientists developed no-till farming, which was without tillage. So it was the idea that you don't have to necessarily open up your furrows with a plow, but you can drill your seeds directly into whatever vegetation is there. And that's a very effective means of agriculture. It's used all over the world. Uh, Brazil has about two-thirds of its land in no-till farming, and many countries just don't use it at that rate. In the U.S., where it was invented, we're still at about 30% of our land in no-till. Why do you think people don't actually want to go to no-till? Well, I actually have. I have an idea because I was asking one of my local farmers about this in preparation. And I said, why do you plow? And he said, because my father's always plowed. Oh, that is the classic answer. People don't believe me when I say that. But farming is one of the most traditional activities we do. And people learn how to do it from their parents or their grandparents. And they do what's always been done. And there are all these stories, you know, about crops that people will say, yeah, but back in 1955, my granddaddy didn't plow and this is what happened. And that's just outdated information. And a lot of it is just lore. So that's fascinating that you heard that answer because it's a common one. Yeah. He also said he likes the look of a kind of smooth brown field. So it's an aesthetic appeal to him. So do I. I think there's something absolutely gorgeous about a freshly plowed field. That's my little secret guilt. I think it's beautiful. It smells good. It shows the soil at its best. And no-till farming is definitely not as attractive because you have all these dead plants and residue from the previous crop. So yeah, the decisions are being made on things like that. Like my father taught me to do it. It's always been done. I like the look of it. And the result is all those things are lovely, but if the soil disappears, none of them are going to matter. And that's unfortunately what's happening. How fast is it going? And what are the predictions in some areas? I mean, the Dust Bowl, there were huge famines in the Midwest, weren't there, some half a century ago? That's absolutely right. The Dust Bowl is the 1930s, so it's getting over close to a century now. And for 10 years, there was an unprecedented drought in the Midwest United States. And it caused the emigration of millions of farmers from the Midwest, and they settled a lot of them in California. And so you find a lot of distant relatives of Oklahoma farmers all over California, which is where they settled and then began to farm again in more hospitable environments. And then when that drought was over, of course, the Midwest came back fairly quickly, but the soil was never the same because so much of it had been removed in the Dust Bowl. Where does that soil go? Presumably it goes effectively into the rivers and then it goes down the rivers into the river deltas and then is deposited on the seafloor. Is that where vast amounts of it exist? There are sort of two major processes. One is wind and one is water. And with the water, it's exactly what you said, that when it's washed off the slopes of the farmland, it goes into rivers and streams and eventually into larger bodies of water. In the United States, the most serious one is the Mississippi River, which is a massive river down the middle of the country. And the farmland from miles and miles on either side slopes down to the Mississippi. And so a lot of the soil that's eroded ends up in the Mississippi, which is a very brown and silt-laden river. And then when it dumps into the Gulf of Mexico, it delivers both the soil and all the nutrients that have been removed from the land and with the soil. 
And as a result, we have a total imbalance in the Gulf of Mexico. And there's about a 7,900 square mile area that is hypoxic, which means out of oxygen as a result of that pollution. And it's just destroyed the fishing and shellfish industry in the Gulf of Mexico. And we've been trying to clean that up for 20 years and it's getting worse, not better. So that's one of the things that happens is it ends up in places that it shouldn't and it pollutes them. In other cases, so one great example is the delta of the Nile, where the soil is removed upstream. And then when the river floods downstream, largely in Egypt, it forms the delta, which is where all that beautiful silt and soil that's carried from upstream is deposited. And so that's a good thing. That's where the soil is actually needed. And it's a benefit to the Delta, which has fed traditionally about a third of the Egyptian population. But then they built a big dam upstream of the Delta. And that dam slowed down the water movement. And in the lake behind the dam, the water is pretty slow moving when the dam is closed and the silt settles out. And so then when the water goes over the dam, when the dam is opened up, it doesn't carry that silt. So the lake behind the dam is filling up with enormous quantities of this silt from the travels of the Nile River. And the delta downstream is getting starved and needs massive amounts of fertilizer and minerals to replace what isn't being deposited by the river. Wind erosion is an interesting one because Soil can travel very long distances. And so there are soils in the deserts of Asia that are actually taken into the atmosphere by wind and deposited in the Americas. Oh, wow. That's a long way. <laughs> so some people have proposed, well, maybe there should be a tax on this great soil that ends up, you know, and the farmers use it in the Americas, and maybe they should have to pay Asia for it. So yeah, it can travel around the world. And so yeah, air movement is a fascinating one because wind currents are so global in their nature and their impact. I think very recently, actually, there was a rainstorm in London, and people were saying that there was silt, like sand. And I was told that this was dust from the Sahara of some kind of big storm that had gone up high yep. and come across and then got rained out. And so people's cars in London were being covered in very fine particles from the Sahara Desert. So Sahara Desert, uh, yeah. exactly. It's, isn't that amazing that it travels that far? Absolutely amazing. Yeah, yeah. But I suppose there's a sort of a certain amount of exchange of nutrients there, you know, coming from other places. Mm -hmm. I mean, the annual flooding of the Nile is mentioned in the Bible, isn't it? Yeah. The whole thing about rhythms of the planet you know you build that dam and you don't have that ancient rhythm yeah. of the flooding of the nile and the silt coming in and which presumably was massively behind the rise of the egyptian dynasties and the pharaohs and the building of the pyramids so you know if it hadn't done that mm -hmm. it probably wouldn't have the pyramids or the sphinx or anything like that that's right fascinating yeah so how are we going to address topsoil loss and, and i did have a question which is can you make topsoil how do you reverse this trend? Well, if there's still some topsoil there, it's actually easier to build the topsoil because you have sort of almost like starter culture. You have all the microorganisms and the plant material. Then if you add to it compost or plants that have very deep roots that feed the soil, that will nourish soil and it'll build soil. So there are ways to speed up the rate at which soil is produced. Naturally, it will be generated at about half a ton per acre per year, which is a very, very small amount. 
So that's a pretty slow rate. I was thinking about it from my own perspective because I grow grass for my horses on, yeah, I've got 165 acres. Mm. Some of my land slopes down and I just never plow it at all. I also don't spray it with anything and I, I don't mind what some people would call weeds because I think they bring up different levels of soil and stuff. Mm-hmm. But sometimes if it gets a bit out of hand, I just sort of top the vegetation off and leave it on the ground. Mm-hmm. And my thinking is that that will become soil because that's effectively what it is. But I also clean out the horses. Each horse does about half a barrow load of poo every day. And I have to take that out of the stables and I pile that up and let it rot down. And once a year, I spread all of that muck on the fields. And that rhythm of taking animal dung that have been fed off the land and then spreading it back again is an ancient one. I mean, it goes way back beyond the medieval. It goes back probably to the dawn of agriculture when people realized they needed to give back. And it it creates a virtuous cycle, I would think, because the better the soil, the more the production can be, the more surplus is, as long as you don't take it away and you put it back on the soil, it hopefully will build up. But I have noticed when you get the, what I call sort of glancing light, when you get a really late summer sun or something like that, and you get the light, you can, you can see undulations in the ground more easily as a result. And you can see where people have plowed. Mm. You can see the level of the soil in certain parts is slightly lower and there's an edge. And I think that's probably from where the soil has been plowed and eroded over many, many decades. Mm-hmm. And the headlands, the top bits, are not. They're just the bits that people turned around on and, and are left. And it doesn't look like much, but when you actually see it, it's a good few inches of difference. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating to think this has been happening for a while. It has. And that's the thing. It's a little bit each year, but it's cumulative until it actually changes the topography of your landscape. So yes, you're absolutely right. And you're right also about the cycle of returning animal waste to the soil and not cutting it. In fact, some of the really great soils of the world, including the United States plains, which are incredibly fertile, some of the savannas in Africa and the steppes in Ukraine and Russia were mostly formed by the process you're describing where these mixed prairies of many different kinds of plants that were naturally occurring very deep-rooted because the deep-rooted plants tend to deposit carbon and organic matter into the soil. And when they're not disturbed, then their roots will turn over in the soil and generate a lot of food for microorganisms and the other organisms that give soil its fertility and structure. And then they're also coupled with animal grazing. And there's actually a new approach to animal husbandry that is called rotational grazing, where it mimics the effect of herds. And traditionally, the large animals that grazed on these prairies would move in groups and they would eat in one area for a while and then they would move on. And the herd was a way of protecting themselves. You know, there's power in numbers. And so they would move in very, very dense herds, actually. And what people have found is that if the plants are cropped down by the animals to about half their size, they grow back tremendously. It actually stimulates plant growth. And so you can actually get more photosynthesis from those plants and more carbon deposition in the soil than if the animals hadn't even been there. But if the animals eat them way down to the soil level, then they have a long recovery time and there's less photosynthesis. So in fact, these animals, if they're managed properly, can be a benefit to the soil and actually lead to more carbon deposition 
And as you say, then they're returning nitrogen to the soil in, in their waste. So that's a very natural and very effective cycle for regenerating soil. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction. And free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Is it possible to actually artificially manufacture soil? Could you imagine taking you know, vast quantities of bedrock, crushing it up and spraying it with the right kind of seed culture and and repairing our our soils in gigatons and spreading it again or is that just impossible to do you know nothing is impossible i would <laughs> i would not say that technology couldn't do that but it sounds like an awfully expensive way of doing what can be done naturally through microorganisms and natural chemicals just the rocks and uh, minerals of the soil and so a much more effective way because it's not expensive and is shown to be very effective in regenerating damaged soils is simply reducing plowing to the minimum, adding cover crops during the winter period when the soil is not planted so that it doesn't blow away. The cover crops will also add carbon and organic matter as they decompose. And then using intercropping, which is a very, very old farming technique that indigenous people have been using for thousands of years and is extremely effective at regenerating soil. And so in modern agriculture, this has been used to reduce the damage that plants like corn, you know, some of these grain plants are very destructive to soil. You can take just 10% of the corn out of production and replace it with strips of prairie plants. So mixtures of grasses and legumes that have these very deep root systems that nourish the soil. And you can reduce erosion from planting the corn by 90% just by putting 10% of the corn into strips of prairie plants. So there are some very, very effective ways to reduce soil erosion that don't require a massive change in our practices. It's just some change. And what I think we need to do is incentivize farmers to use those practices and convert their farming to methods that will build soil rather than destroy it. Yes, almost create the idea that farmers are not there necessarily to maximize yields, but to maximize long-term mm -hmm. benefits of the environment. Yeah. There was something I wanted to ask you about. You, you open your book by talking about a memo you never wrote. Can you explain that a little bit more to us? Because that sounds fascinating. Yeah, I worked for President Obama for the last three years of his second term in office. And I served as a science advisor, and I worked with him on many, many different issues from precision medicine to the microbiome to 
pollinators, many other things. And it was uh, it was really an exciting job to work in the White House and work on national and international issues that required science policy. But the one thing that I did, I actually did write the memo on soil, and I wanted to tell him about the destruction of soil and why it was so critical that we act now to fix this problem, because it is fixable, but we just need to change some of the economic incentives to make it possible for farmers who work kind of on a financial edge uh, in most of the world. Most of them are not getting rich on their farming. They're just surviving but we need to give them the wherewithal to make the right choices for the soil. So I wrote this memo, but it was so late in the administration that people said it just was too late to introduce as big a topic as that. And so I never got to send the memo, which is the first step in developing any kind of policy initiative. But I figured that my book might reach him and many others to affect soil policy. So that's how I compensated. Well, I hope it does. I mean, what are the sort of top line things that we need to do to we, we need to change uh, farming practices and educate people who might not know? And and also using the word conservative with a small c, I'm not talking about politics. Here, I'm talking about people who've grown up as farmers and their parents are farmers and it goes back a long way. They, as you said, they have a way of doing things. How do we help them to understand that we need to change if we're going to be farming in the long term? My experience is that most farmers are pretty savvy. They know their land and the weather systems and everything that they're confronting better than anybody. Most of the time, they know what will build their soil and what makes their farming vulnerable. And they simply, in many cases, can't afford it. Now, some of them will just say, I do it the way I've always done it and I don't want to change. But given the option and the data And farmers are very data-driven now because they have to be, because they won't survive if they're not accommodating the data on weather and fertility and all sorts of other things. I think farmers will change, but we need to provide them with the financial wherewithal to do it. So, for example, if a farmer wants to switch from plowing and he owns or she owns a plow and wants to go to no-till and drill seeds, that means a change in equipment. Well, that's a big investment. That's a capital change in a farming system. And so we need to somehow provide either the funds or the equipment or somehow a cooperative system that farmers could share equipment that would make it possible for them to do that without having to lay out all of the money up front. So that's one example of a way that farmers are prevented from changing. Another one, which may be specific to the United States, but it's really perverse when you think of it, is that I asked farmers in Iowa, why won't you go to the strip farming where it was actually developed in Iowa in the United States? Why don't you switch to this where, you know, just removing 10% of your corn from production and replacing it with prairie plants will completely stop your soil erosion? And they said, well, if we plant 10% less corn, we get 10% less crop insurance. Now, that's a fixable problem. And in fact, I tried to work on that when I was in the White House, but it turns out it's politically pretty loaded. But if somebody really, I didn't have enough time, but um, if somebody who was just starting now and had a lot of time, for example, in the Department of Agriculture, wanted to fix that, uh, crop insurance is a combination of government money and private bank money, that would be pretty easy to fix. And so a farmer can't take you know, a risk of 10% of his or her income. That's too big a risk. So we just have to remove the risk. 
yeah, society has got to pump prime the change, hasn't it, really? Yeah. You can't expect the farmer to carry the burden of protecting all our livelihoods. Because quite frankly, if the soil goes, we're going to die, aren't we? We're going to have no food. Yeah. Outside hydroponics, I suppose, you're not going to be growing food in any sensible level of cost. That's right. Wow. So really, we need a kind of collective action to sort of, we need taxpayers. I mean, let's face it, taxpayers, we subsidize all sorts of things. You know? Exactly. Huge number of things. Yep. And subsidizing the survival of our land and our food system seems like a pretty important thing to subsidize. But consumers could also subsidize it. So, you know, in, in many countries, we have organic food that has a cost premium. And many people are willing to pay that cost to have food that's been raised under organic systems and organic certified. And what if we had a soil safe label? that would go on food. And so food that had been produced under soil nurturing conditions rather than soil destructive conditions could be certified and get a, a sticker or some label that would indicate it had been raised that way and it would be charged a premium. My guess is that many people would be willing to pay that, especially since depositing all of this carbon that we need to deposit in soil is mitigating climate change as well. So there's a double advantage there. Yeah. It really is. There's a double win there, which is quite rare sometimes in life, when you can do, a, good, do right. a thing that's good and another thing that's good at the same time. Exactly. And it really doesn't cost that much. And on top of it, if prairie plants are part of the solution, that also helps the pollinator populations. So it's a triple good. So there are many practices that will uh, reduce the vulnerability of soil, increase the depth of the topsoil increase carbon in the soil, thereby reducing it in the atmosphere, and increase the food for pollinators. That just seems to me to be a win-win-win that somebody should be willing to pay for. It's an interesting one because part of my other life is making computer games. One of the things I'm always aware of is different ways of incentivizing. So you can ask people to be virtuous and they'll pay a bit more for organic food because they think it's healthy, but that's only those people that can afford to. There are plenty of people that just literally can't afford to. So the other side of that coin is to say we will increase the tax on food types that are not soil safe. We could basically punish you. You know, we could increase the cost of non-organic foods Mm -hmm. by using the tax system. And this would be a political hot potato for sure. Mm -hmm. But you could also subsidize it. In other words, you could reduce the cost of the good foods Mm -hmm. in a similar way. I don't know how... Again, different places have different taxes on food. In the UK, there's value-added tax and there's all sorts of mechanisms and levers that the government has to affect things. So it, mm-hmm. it might be that there'll be a way of equalizing the cost of those foods. That's true. And I think a lot of countries have food subsidies. Mm. In the United States, we have a lot of ways that we subsidize farming practices. And that has traditionally been used to incentivize certain practices we could be using that today to incentivize soil safe practices. And unfortunately, we just don't use it. Or when we do, the farmers aren't held accountable. And so we never know if they're actually practicing those practices. Right. So we almost do have the mechanisms in place. We've just got to kind of get them into the system to do the right sort of thing. We've already got the subsidy mechanism. People already paid subsidies. They are in the UK. There's farming subsidies and it's just got to be tweaked Mm -hmm. to preserve soil so i mean obviously soil back in the day in in the medieval period was very local you had a strip farming system often with three great fields and they had a a simple form of crop rotation 
one field would be beans, one field would be some kind of equivalent of wheat or barley or probably barley and oats and things. And the other was left fallow for a year and was also a lot of the animals will be fed on it. So they, they had this natural rotating system. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, they often had strips. Now, the reason for having long strips was that if you're going to plow in one direction, and these are we're talking about scratch plows rather than mold ball mm-hmm. plows here. So you're just moving the top few inches, I would guess. You might as well just keep going. Turning around takes a lot longer. So you could go in a, in a long line, turn around, and come back in a long line. It was saving you time. But they also mixed those strips up so you would not necessarily you might have six strips but they would be in different parts of the field and that was rotated between people so it was a sort of a sense of fairness but you would never know which bit of soil might be yours in two years time Ah. so there was sort of an incentive to look after it because it might be yours next year but it might be your neighbors and it might be you know it might be a fifth of your income and if you got a bad strip that somebody wasn't looking after there'd be an incentive for you to give them a load of hassle for messing with the soil. Mm-hmm. So it's fascinating to think that sometimes there were mechanisms in the past that probably promoted good soil husbandry in a way. Absolutely. And the, the societies that have lasted for a long time are known for their excellent soil husbandry. And you know there are groups like the Maya indigenous people on this continent, and there are equivalent ones all over the world who have been continuously practicing agriculture for thousands of years in the same place. Well, at the rate we're going, we're going to lose most of our soil in about 250 years of agriculture. So you can tell to last thousands of years. And many societies did not practice good agriculture, and we don't hear much from those societies. But people like the Maya uh, are still doing exactly what they did thousands of years ago because they replenish the soil. So you're absolutely right. And crop rotation, as you described, is always a part of good, healthy soil practices. Um. Quick question about human waste. Mm-hmm. In a lot of cultures before there were sewers and sewage treatment, human waste, solid waste, was, was collected, processed, and again, it was completely the same as animal waste. Mm-hmm. It was spread on the fields. Now, I think there are some societies on the planet that still do that to a large extent, but we seem to treat human solid waste as a sort of a thing to be disposed of or burnt, and that seems to me that's... Whilst it's a bit of a kind of, not a gruesome subject, but a subject that's uncomfortable to talk about sometimes, Mm -hmm. I think it probably needs dealing with because we're producing valuable fertilizer every day and it's wasted. And we don't complete the cycle, right? Mm. We don't return those nutrients to the soil. Those nutrients are cast off into, you know, sewage systems and the old fashioned septic systems. uh, I don't know if you have those in the UK, but Mm -hmm. um, those are actually a way of replenishing the soil because they very slowly degrade the human waste using bacterial processes. And then that seeps into the soil very, very slowly so that it doesn't contaminate it the way fertilizers would, um, but it's then processed by the soil organisms. So there are still a few practices around that will recycle human waste. And then, as you say, there are many cultures, particularly, for example, in China, where human waste is used across many, many parts of the country. The problem becomes the spread of infectious organisms. Right, of course. That's also a problem with animal waste, that if it's not treated properly, and then the food itself, fruits and vegetables in particular, are not washed properly, that can be a means of spreading pathogens. 
And so you're taking a concentrated source of microorganisms in an animal or a human and applying it to something that will ultimately be consumed. And so that just has to be done very carefully. But you're absolutely right. Processing can make it very safe. Mm. It's an interesting resource that we, we just tend to just flush it away and not think about it. And really, yeah. we're part of the world and we should be giving back. And it would probably build the soil. If it's done properly, it would build the soil just as effectively as animal dung, really. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Um, we're coming more or less to the end of the time. It's been very interesting. Was there anything you wanted to sort of add that we haven't covered? Because obviously it's not my area of expertise and it is, of course, your area of expertise. Well, I think we've covered the uh, the highlights uh, of what I think are the key issues of losing soil as well as preserving it. And I think we just all need to engage in the process of making sure that our soil is there for decades to come. So if people wanted to look up more of your studies or your, your writing, you've got the book. The book is called A World Without Soil. That's right. And is that available from all popular online sales places? Yes. It's recently been released in the UK. There's also a website called soilrocks.org that talks about the book as well as providing other resources about soil, um, some policy documents and other people's perspectives on soil and how to preserve it. And if people wanted to help the process of not depleting soil or even building it up again, what can they do if they're not farmers and stuff? Is it a matter of spreading the the knowledge and communicating with those in power? What would you suggest people can do? Absolutely. That's one of the things is to put pressure on people who are making policy and ensure that they realize that this is important to their constituents. It also is important to act locally. And so municipalities should be doing more on composting, saving you know, the trimmings of trees and grass and returning them to the soil through a composting process. And I think that has to be done centrally because not all composting is done well. And when individuals do it, it very often gets messed up so that it ends up releasing greenhouse gases to a pretty frightening extent. But I think just like we have trash pickup in many parts of the world by a municipal group, I think we need to have compost pickup as well. You know, in most of the world, we waste a lot of food. In the United States, it's about one third of our food. If we recycled that into compost and put that into the soil, that would be a tremendous source of nutrients that would build soil. So I think local movements are important. Um, Just adding compost to your own soil, if you have a little backyard garden, I think that's important. And then putting pressure on both farmers and lawmakers to provide the incentives for food to be grown in ways that build the soil. Wonderful. Thank you very much. It's been enlightening and very interesting. Thank you for sharing your observations. I appreciate it very much. Thanks, Jason. Great to talk to you. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.